we've seen the reality of our situation. We've seen that we are in spiritual war, whether you feel it or not. It's a reality of where we're at. We're in the midst of that, and as one's not of this world, the powers and principalities of this world are on a mission to seek out and destroy us. So Paul is calling us to action. He's called us to stand firm. And last week, we learned, thank you, Joel, we learned how we can be confident in our ability to stand thanks to God because he's going to give us tools. He's going to give us his armor to aid us in this battle against the evil one. And so this morning, we're going to begin looking at those pieces of armor as we look at each one over the next few weeks. We'll pick up in Ephesians 6.13 to find the very first piece which we're focusing on today. If you have your Bibles with you, you can read along. If not, it's up on the screen there for you. Like I said, it's really long. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. The word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Let's pray before we enter into his word. Father, the unfolding of your word gives light and imparts understanding to the simple, and we are simple people who need your truth, your wisdom, and your understanding. Would you use your word to deepen our faith and confirm your truth in our hearts this morning? Amen. There are four words that can immediately cause my heart to begin to sink as of late. Did you hear about? You've probably heard that a lot. Did you hear about Nashville? Did you hear about Parkland? Did you hear about the latest from Ukraine? Did you hear about the latest body they found in Austin? These kinds of conversations have become all too common recently. It's almost overwhelming because we live in a world that's inundated with evil, with mass shootings and serial killers and tyrannical governments, acts that completely disregard human life in the most vile and disgusting ways. We can't look at these things and seriously say to ourselves, there is no evil beyond flesh and blood in this world. The news we encounter on a daily basis attests to this. There's something out there worse than just an unhinged or cruel person. There is demonic activity. It's real, and it confronts us constantly. I can remember just uh, a few months ago as the alerts were popping up on my phone as the news about Nashville was rolling in, and um, as a father of a daughter who's working toward becoming a pastor in the PCA, married to someone who's a school teacher. That event really rattled me. It shook me as I I read the updates, finding out more and more, I was just overwhelmed with grief and fear. And the only way I could respond was to think, how do I even respond to something like this? How, How does anyone respond to something like this? We get so weary from seeing all this evil, we can't help but think, is there anything we can do? Is there anything even worth doing that can make a difference at all. Andrew talked about Satan being on the move against us, a lion prowling, looking to devour us. Well, we can feel overwhelmed, outflanked, and swallowed up just by looking out at the world before we even get to what's going on in our own lives. But Paul knew that we would end up there. 
Paul knew what we were facing and how we would feel as we saw it. Surely he experienced that himself in his persecution. And so he's looking to encourage us. He's looking to remind us as we look at the way that God helps us. He's saying, God is going to give you something for the battle. Let me tell you about it. Now, for most of us here this morning, and and maybe all of us, we'll never face a battle on the scale of, of all the events I just talked about. But that's what we tend to associate with this battle against Satan. We don't normally think about the little jabs like Andrew talked about a few weeks ago, but the jabs are just as dangerous. They need to be taken just as seriously. The fight against the powers of this world is still just as real for you and me. Satan's plans against us, as we've learned over the past few weeks, primarily manifest in lies and accusations for us. He seeks to destroy us through subtle deception and, and clever ways of deceiving us, just wrong enough for, us to be, for it to be believable to us. He's crafty, and he is good at what he does. And so we need to be prepared. And Paul is helping us with that by pointing us to the tools that God gives us to be prepared, to aid in that battle against the evil one. And the first one on the list is truth. The devil seeks to destroy by means of deception and lying, so we need the truth of Christ if we're going to stand. If we have any hope of standing against the deceptions of Satan, we need the truth. So Paul tells us then to stand firm with the belt of truth. That's our first tool, the first piece of the armor. So how does the belt help us stand? Well, we gird up, we fasten down, and we live out. We gird up. If you read along, if you read along with me or if you have your Bibles, you likely saw a similar translation of verse 14 there. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. What's interesting about our passage this morning is that the word belt doesn't actually occur in it. If you look at the Greek, it's just not there. Uh, Now, I'm not saying that the translation is wrong. I think the translation is actually right to call it a belt, uh, to call this piece of armor that, but it comes from the implication of the text, which we'll talk about later. So it's helpful to understand that because if we look at what's really being said here, it helps us understand the text and see Paul's emphasis. The language here is really more of a command. Paul is saying, stand, gird up your waist or gird up your loins in truth. The real object here is not the belt. The object is truth. Before we get to truth, though, the text is calling us to action. It's saying gird up. So what does that mean? We prepare and we prepare knowing our foundation. That's what it means. Most of us are probably familiar with the action of girding. I'm sure, you know, if you've been in church long enough and heard any Bible story, at some point or another, somebody's talked about what girding up actually means. Uh, you know, people in, in, the, in the time of the ancient Near East would wear longer cloaks, and so if guys needed to do some kind of activity that wasn't good and, and essentially addressed, what they would have to do is they'd have to gather up their garments and strap it to their waist so that they had more movement, right? So it's a preparation for better movement, uh, for some strenuous or difficult activity normally done before they went into battle. The word even carries a connotation of being ready for a fight or being armed for that purpose. There's an immediate call to being prepared for the fight with truth. So how do we do that? 
The simplest answer is we go into this battle knowing that it'll be difficult. We don't let ourselves be deceived about this. If you've been sitting through this series these past few weeks so far and thinking, I I get it, I believe it, I just don't feel this pressure. I, I just don't feel like I'm in battle. I don't see where the devil could be deceiving me specifically. Well, that's naivety. The devil is seeking to find any way he can to lead you off the path to distract you and pull you away from God. So we go into this knowing we're in a battle even if you don't feel it. We go into this knowing that every one of us is in that and it's not going to be easy because Satan does not fight fair. He'll use every trick he can attacking you in your weakest moments and in your weakest spots. Being prepared is also more than just a defensive awareness of the difficulty ahead, though. It means remaining vigilant in this battle. We don't just wait around for the devil's attacks. If you remember uh, last year, the famous moment in the Oscars, Will Smith slaps Chris Rock. That's what we all remember. A little bit later, though, he actually received an award and in a very emotional speech realized he had done wrong and started to talk a bit about it. And he said, you know, he pointed to Denzel Washington and he said, just before this, Denzel warned me. He said, when you're at your highest, be careful because that's where the devil is waiting for you. And you know, that's not bad advice, but I'd say it's not whole advice. I don't think Denzel has the whole picture here. The reality is the devil is not just waiting for you in your highs. He's always waiting for you. He's waiting for you in your highs, in your lows, and in your everyday norms. So we prepare actively looking for his assaults on us. The more readily we can identify his schemes and be prepared, the more readily we can stand against them. We need to seek them out if we're going to be prepared, and truth is what helps us to do that. That's our foundation, and so we prepare knowing that as our foundation. Why do you think it is that Paul starts with the belt of truth in this list of the armor of God? I mean, truth is important, sure, we'd all agree to that, but that doesn't really make sense initially to us. You know, could you imagine a scene from some great war epic where the general comes in and he says, men, the war has been declared, we're going to battle, I need you to get ready, grab your belts. It doesn't really make sense, right? Like that's not the epic moment you would think of. You'd think it would be pulling up your sword or at the very least getting a shield to defend yourself in battle. Those are the first pieces we'd grab, but Paul says no, that's not it. So why does he start with truth? Why the belt? He wants us to understand that this is the foundation of our power and strength in the fight. Remember, the text actually says, gird up your waist or gird up your loins. And the word there for loins frequently has the sense of being the seat and source of power for someone. So Paul is telling us that if we're going to stand firm against Satan's schemes, we need the right source of power. And that's not the sword and it's not a shield. It's truth. It's the belt. Satan's primary means of attacking is through subtle deception. He seeks to deceive, distract, and disorient us so that we end up following him instead of God. His very first attack in the garden started that way. He didn't come out guns blazing. He came out simply saying, did God really say you couldn't eat from any tree? Do you think God really wants or or even knows what's best for you, Eve? Do you think he's thinking about that? That's how he works. So Paul says if we're going to have any hope of defending against that kind of deception, we need truth first and foremost. 
It'll be our foundation against the evil, and it grounds us with a sure knowledge of who we are in Christ before God. It guides us, revealing what it truly looks like to believe and follow God. Truth is the source of our strength and power against the principalities of this world because it helps us to identify the enemy's work and recognize his lies. You know, if you've seen the the first Captain America movie, um, this is at the end, but it's been a while, so it's okay. Uh, there's a moment where near the end, he, he crashes the, the enemy's plane, and the very next scene, we see Captain America waking up, and he's in this hospital room, and he's surrounded by, by a lot of familiar stuff. You know, a breeze is blowing in through the window as he hears New York traffic honking down on the street, and he's looking around, and he sees some, you know, regular hospital room kind of stuff. He looks out the window and sees some 1940s skyscrapers. And even on the radio playing, there's a Brooklyn Dodgers game being called out. And as a nurse walks in the room, his very first question is, where am I? And she says, oh, well, you're, you're in a hospital, Mr. Rogers. And he looks at her and he says, where am I really? And before she can say something to try to reassure him, he, he lets her know. He says, that game is a Brooklyn Dodgers game from May 1943. I know because I was there. Where am I? And then he flees out of the room and busts out of the doors and finds himself realizing that it was all a trick. It was a clever facade to make him think he was somewhere else when he's actually in New York 70 years in the future. When we know the truth, the truth of Christ and the truth of the gospel, it helps us recognize the tricks of Satan If we know the truth in whatever clever facade the devil may try to trap us with, it loses its deceiving power. We can recognize it immediately. When we begin to to hear him whisper lies to us, you know, you've given that person a lot of grace already, and they really hurt you. You know, it's it's totally fair to warn people about who they, they really are. That's all you're doing. We can know with certainty, no... There's something off about that. That's, that doesn't feel like the right move in this situation. I think that's gossip. I don't think that's where the Lord wants me, or what the Lord wants me doing. Having the truth as our foundation gives us a measure. It provides a standard by which we can use to prepare, and identi- prepare for and identify Satan's lies. We use the truth to identify his lies by familiarizing ourselves with the truth holding fast to it and comparing it with our feelings and our beliefs, comparing it with the influences in our lives to see if it lines up with the word, if it lines up with the will of God. But how do we prepare with that truth? What, is it, what does it practically look like? What are some ways we can do that? And I think that mainly comes through self-examination. We need to know his truth, But we need to do more than know. We need to be willing to ask ourselves some difficult questions. Think to yourself, if if the evil one were going to prey on a particular weakness of mine, self-doubt, jealousy, maybe self-control, what would be the easiest for him to manipulate in my life? Jim Whittle offered another helpful question a week ago. What in your life leads to prayerlessness? Surely the devil would want to work there. Even asking, where do I feel the strongest? Where am I most confident? The devil can easily overtake our confidence and turn it against us. We're trying to find out where are the gaps in my armor? 
What are the gaps that the devil can exploit? I think about this. uh, One way that this kind of worked for me is earlier in June, we were with some really good friends up in Charleston. uh, First time we had gotten to hang out with them in a long time, and it was a really refreshing and life-giving trip. We were so thankful for it. Um, Most of the trip was long conversations late into the night, joking around, uh, having fun, reminiscing. But we also talked about some hard things in those moments. We talked about the ways that that I've experienced a lot of uh, struggles with patience and anger in my parenting that I really didn't expect to be the case when we were expecting a child. And as I was talking about it, our friend who's uh, several years older than us and, and has older kids, you know, just throwing out some wisdom, he said, hey, you really need to go to counseling and explore some of this. I think that'd be helpful for you. I said, yeah, I know. Counseling's great. I know it. I know I need it. You know, there's some things that I really need to talk about in there, but, ah, well, you know, I'm, I'm in seminary. I have a job. It's just, I don't know if I have the time. It's expensive. I don't know if I really have the money. Like, I'm going to. Don't worry. I'm going to get there, but it's just not a good time for us right now. As we kept talking, poking, prodding, examining, I came to realize in that conversation that all of these were just excuses covering up the fact that I'm actually terrified of what would happen if I were to walk in that room. See, I watched as a close friend of mine, uh, his life began, excuse me, his life began to unravel as he was going to counseling. And so I began to think, if I go there, the same thing will will happen to me. Let me ask you this. Is that the truth? Did counseling do that to him? No. No, Satan took biblical counseling, something good and something helpful for the people of God, and he used an emotional experience in my life to plant a seed of doubt. He didn't assault me with an all-out lie. He didn't even try to convince me that counseling was evil. He convinced me counseling was good, that it was very good for many people, just not me. That's how he works. He uses subtle, crafty manipulation and lies to keep us from the truth whenever possible. Now, that was a simple conclusion for me. That's something that when I thought about it for the first time, I said, duh, of course I'm scared. It's not about the money. Of course I'm worried about what'll happen. It's not timing, but it took me a long way to get there. Where do you think the devil might be leading you astray in the same ways? Where do you think he's subtly deceiving you, convincing you of good, but keeping you from it somehow? We need to think about that. We use the truth as a standard and a measure to help us remain vigilant against the devil's lies. So we've seen what it looks like to prepare with truth. What does it look like to put on truth? That's how we prepare. What's it look like to put on? Well, we fasten down. We fasten down. To put on the truth, we need to know what truth we're putting on. We don't blindly prepare or gird up without purpose, and we don't put on our truth. See, contextually, the word here points us outside of ourselves to something greater than ourselves, the object of truth, 
and the power of truth. What's that object of truth? Andrew made a point last week to stress that the armor is something we're called to take up and put on because we already have it. It's not something that we have to earn or something that we have to work toward. God gives it to us now. And this week, I want to stress something in relation to that. This week, I want to stress that he gives it to us now because it's his to give. The armor was not ours originally. It was worn by another. I want you to see that. Look at Isaiah 11 with me. I think it'll be up on the screen for us. Verses 1 through 5. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. And listen to this. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Jesus wore it first. He wore it into battle before we did. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the demands of righteousness. He took the gospel and bold proclamation all around him, declaring peace for the afflicted and condemned. He carried out the Father's will in perfect faith, making nothing of Satan's fiery darts. He is the anointed one who is responsible for salvation. And he faced this all empowered by the sword of, of the Spirit, the word of God itself living steadfastly in all things by its truth. The word there in Isaiah 11:5, faithfulness, it's the Hebrew equivalent of steadfastness or truth. See, Jesus lived by the foundation of truth in perfect righteousness, in perfect steadfastness, standing fast against Satan at every moment, never missing a step, all because he knew that we wouldn't. He gives us the spoils of his victory, the armor of God, and that's a great help, but the evil one is still crafty, and he still deceives. Jesus knew that we would be outmaneuvered from time to time, but he lived out truth and faithfulness for our sake so that he could say to us, listen to me, Satan may win against you for a moment, but he will never win out against me. We find strength to continue standing against Satan and his schemes, not in ourselves, but in the power of Jesus who has already gone before us. The power of his truth is evident when we look at his life as well. We find strength in his power and we find that the power of his truth is evident. We find a source for strength in his truth because Jesus didn't just live out this truth for himself. He vindicated it. Jesus has proven the claims of his power in the gospel. Now, it might be hard for us to remember because it's been a while since we've been in Ephesians, but when we started it, if you remember about the, the structure of the book as a whole, the first half is all indicatives. It's all, hey, this is the truth. These are the truths of Christ's work and our redemption. And then in the last half, where we're at now, it's all about imperatives. How do you live based on that truth? And near the very beginning, 
In that section on truths, Paul says in Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. God's might was proven in the resurrection of Christ, having been seated at the right hand of the Father, proving his rule over all authority, over all power and dominion, over sin and evil and death and Satan. Jesus proved his promise of eternal life and peace by power of the principalities of this world was true by breaking free from their captivity and crushing any power or rule they might have, might have had over him. He proved it by his life, death, and resurrection. And now being in him, we are given that power. Just a chapter later, look at Ephesians 2, 5, and 6. It says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Jesus defeated the powers and he's at the right hand now to prove it and we are in him there. We get that same power. By his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus has proven the truth of his claims. He's shown us by example that he has power over Satan and death. That they are nothing to him. So his truth is greater than Satan's lies. It's worth following, and we know that because we can look to his life and know with certainty that he will follow through on what he says. That he will deliver on his promises. We can know that in him we will be given the same life and that same power over the devil in his schemes. And so with our certainty, we gird up preparing in truth and we fasten down anchoring, anchoring ourselves to the object and power of God's truth. And lastly, we do all this so that we can live out his truth. Now, commentators have differing opinions on this, but I believe that truth in this passage, when it says belt of truth, is really referring to the truth of the gospel or God's truth as a whole. But there is a sense in which we can correctly see truth here as a subjective truth lived out in our lives. In this way, putting on the belt means taking the external, what you know to be true out there, God's truth, and making it true internally. It's taking truth and believing it in our hearts so that we actually live it out in our lives. This means having integrity and good character. It, mean, it encompasses having a faithful walk with God, steadfastness, confession, and repentance of sin. Basically, living out truth subjectively is an attempt to be more like Jesus it's an attempt to be more like Jesus by the power of his truth in us. There's a, a journal article a, a number of years ago um, that looked at 
Harvard students who didn't have scholarships or trust funds or something like that to help them uh, go through this incredibly expensive Ivy League school, and it looked at students who had to work to earn that tuition. And one of the interviews was uh, a really poignant one. Uh, there was a young girl who had to take up a cleaning job on the side as one of her multiple jobs to help pay for this tuition, and she ended up having to clean the rooms of many of her classmates. And during that time, while cleaning, she was consistently and frequently assaulted by her male classmates while cleaning their rooms. And one of those classmates, she said in the interview, took a moral reasoning class with her and got an A in moral reasoning. And she looked at the interviewer and she said, what's the point of knowing good if you're not trying to become good? We can't fight against the schemes of Satan if you're willingly living them out in, our, in your life. If we're weighed down by persistent and unrepentant sin in our lives, then there's little hope for effectively overcoming the attacks of Satan. Each time we give in to bitterness, impatience, when we refuse to believe God's truth, all we're doing is leaving a little crack in our armor that the devil will be able to exploit. This passage is calling us to reject that life and live out the truth because it will help us to find those cracks. Because it offers something better, but we can only do that, we can only find these cracks if we're actually pursuing that truth. And so what, what does that look like? Just as we fasten down the belt, anchoring ourselves to the truth of the gospel, we need to wrap it around us. We have to be surrounded. We have to surround ourselves with the truth. We can't effectively find our power in truth or live it out if we don't know what it is. We have to seek it out in God's word to understand his will through personal study and sitting under the teaching of others. We have to seek it out by committing to Christian community through the local church, spiritual friendships, prayer groups, Bible studies. We have to commit to it. We need to go to it and see and understand the significance of having the word physically preached to us through the sacraments as a means of grace to nourish us for the battle ahead. We need to make seeking his truth a priority, pursuing it in every area, in every way available in our lives until we live and breathe it, until it becomes second nature to us. His truth has to be everything for us until we live and breathe it. In March 2011, I didn't mean to, I mean, 4th of July is coming up. I didn't intend to close with a military illustration. It just sort of happened this way. So I'm not trying to be uber patriotic or anything here. It's just, it worked out well, but happy 4th. Uh, in March 2011, if you remember, uh, Admiral William McRaven believed that they had located Osama bin Laden. They believed they knew where he was, and so he called in Dave Cooper, a SEAL Team 6 operator, to carry out the operation uh, of killing Osama bin Laden. Now, McCraven, the admiral, he wanted to fly in in the night, uh, fly in a team of SEALs on a stealth helicopter, and Cooper was behind this. He was behind every step of the plan. He loved it, except for the stealth helicopters. They'd never been tested in battle before, and special forces he says, has an unfortunate history of using untested technology in live missions. And so he protested. He tried to, to come up with a different route, but McRaven wouldn't back down. So Cooper did the next best thing. He said, all right, we're going to use a stealth hel helicopter, so let's do this instead. 
In the following weeks, he ran drills with a team that planned to enter the compound, and he started to prep them for a specific scenario in which the helicopter would fail on the mission. They had replica compounds of Bin Laden's place created, and in each one, Cooper would run down helicopter scenarios over and over. He would simulate crashes outside the compound, inside of it, in the courtyard, on the roof, hundreds of yards away. He tried to think of every possible situation where this helicopter could mess up. And each one was essentially the same. They would start the simulation. Partway through, he would say, you're going down now. The pilot would circle the helicopter down, and wherever it touched, the team had to exit and continue the mission from there. And when they were done, they would do something called an after-action review where they would look at every mistake they made so that they could learn how to improve for the future. And they did so many drills, they did this so many times that it became a joke among the team. Oh, Coop, we haven't done enough of these. I don't think I've ever seen this before. We need to do a couple more, I think. Surely we haven't done enough of these today. But there was a point behind the repetition. There was a reason they did it so many times. Because on May 1st, the White House launched the mission and two stealth helicopters left from the U.S. air base in Jalalabad. White House officials, military commanders, CIA officers were all glued to the screen watching the events unfold over drone footage. Smooth start through Pakistani airspace, undetected. Approaching bin Laden's compound, everything going according to plan, working smoothly, until they actually got to the compound. And then one of the helicopters began to skid around erratically in the air, eventually spinning down and crashing, partly on the wall and in the courtyard, leaning on its side. And seeing this, the other helicopter veered off and landed hundreds of yards away from the compound, instead of on the roof where it was meant to be. So everyone watching sat there, holding their breath for the next several seconds, waiting for disaster, assuming the worst, failed mission, and then they saw it. Seals began pouring out of the helicopter, just like the drills, going to work without skipping a beat, as if this was the whole mission they had always planned for. And only eight minutes later, the mission was completed. That's what it looks like to wrap the belt around us, to surround ourselves with the truth. We drill and we drill and we drill over and over and over until it becomes so ingrained in us that we are able to identify any of the devil's schemes. That we are able to see his deceptions clear as day for what they are. We surround ourselves with truth through God's word, his community, and the means of grace. So fully living out his truth becomes a natural guide for our thoughts, words, and deeds. Everything we do. We're in for a long, difficult, and strenuous fight. That's what we've been trying to emphasize over these past few weeks. It's not going to be easy. We need to prepare for this because we desperately need that preparation. Satan doesn't fight fair and he doesn't pull punches. He's crafty and subtle and he knows our every weakness better than we do. This is not something we can take lightly or brush aside. We have the whole power and principalities of the world against us. And in our weaknesses, how in the world could we expect to stand against Satan? It seems like there's little hope for us. It seems that way. But here's the reality. You can't fight Satan on your own. Your strength against his is nothing. It's meaningless. But you know who does? King Jesus. King Jesus has the strength to fight against him. See, you get a community of people gathered together in brokenness 
and weakness and failure, but who are going to say, I believe the truth of the gospel. Who will say, Jesus has declared and proven his truth. He's finished his work, and that's my belt. That's what I'm going to follow. And let me tell you what, that will terrify our adversary. Your strength can't do it alone. Your strength in Jesus, or rather Jesus' strength in you, has Satan quivering. Each of us in here this morning is being assaulted by Satan's lies. If you feel that attack, but you don't feel like you can actually access that strength of Jesus and his work, I want you to look to his truth. I want you to look to his truth and find it through the means that he's provided. Gird yourself up with his word. That's where we find truth. Gird up with it, pursuing him in it each day. Surround yourself with a community of believers who are going to walk through tough situations with you, who are going to encourage you through hardship. And go to his table for nourishment. We get that opportunity today. Go to his table for strength and grace to continue the fight today and this week and in the month to come. The answer to Satan's war of deception is not to toughen up or gird up in your own strength and confidence. That is foolishness. The answer is to believe in the gospel of Christ, to believe in that truth, and to stand in it. Let me pray as Andy comes up to set the table for us. Lord, we thank you. God, we thank you that you are a God of truth. You're not a man that you should lie or a son of man that you should change your mind. We pray that you would help strengthen and equip us by your truth. As we go to the table, ready our hearts to receive your truth and be nourished by grace to stand against the schemes of Satan. Amen.